Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and friends. We're glad you're joining us. Kurt Williams and David Williams join us today and encourage us with stories of how prodigals returned home and are helping a generation turn away from some of the most challenging situations to becoming world changers. Get ready to be encouraged and motivated to keep running your race. After this episode, visit a awardinseasonpodcast.org and find resources Doug and the team have provided for you, including the episode notes from this message. Consider helping us let others know that somebody cares with a donation that will support disaster response and ministry efforts by clicking on the Somebody Cares tab at awardinseasonpodcast.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. Kurt, we've known each other how many years? 37 years. Oh my gosh. I want to bring both of you and and David on. Of course, Kurt Williams is the founder of Youth Reach, and now you have Youth Reach in Houston, Youth Reach Gulf Shores, Alabama. I had the pleasure of meeting David Williams. No relation there. We've been actually at a gathering together called Armor Off that Kurt, the Lord put in your heart a few years ago, and you and I helped to facilitate these. And we've had probably about a dozen people here this time. And it's basically, we just take our armor off. These are senior leaders, key leaders, pastors that put their titles outside. We come together and just take time to hang out, to talk about things that are real to us. And put that on your heart to want to do something like an armor off. And why did you coordinate that and organize us to do it? When I heard from a pastor buddy that had founded a church who had just gotten to the point where he had sent all the messages to his elders and leaders and, and no one was really listening until he finally, on a Sunday morning in front of his entire church, resigned and walked off the stage and left. I never came back. Only a few days later, I found out that a man that runs a ministry that I was very close to had fallen into sin. And these are men that were, as our friend John Elliott says, the, the, the war horses, the men that had been in the fight for many years. Just to see that they had uh, suffered in pain and silence and secret and giving um, you know, men an opportunity to say, here's a safe place a place where you can come, it's confidential, there's rest, there's peace, uh, and there's brothers of like precious faith that when you uh, share a struggle, they're like, yeah, I get that. Mm -hmm. Um, They can relate to the struggle. So it's just really um, some self-care. Pastors and ministers are not very good at that. They usually wait till, you know, they need to call 911 before they uh, reach out for help. But this is giving these men an opportunity to address these things and define brotherhood and strengthen numbers before it's too late. Mm-hmm. You know, two main things that I've come to find, even most recently being reminded of, is that leaders at various levels deal with an element of PTSD spiritually. Yeah. And I've been at this 40 years. You've been at it nearly 40 years. You grew up in the church. And so we've all had some element of challenges. And so taking self-care actually opens us up to a feeling of in, of like inadequacy. If we admit that we have to have self-care or we admit that we have an issue because we're afraid. In fact, there's what's called imposter syndrome. So many are afraid that people really knew who I really was. And so we live in image rather than live in the place of vulnerability with those that we can trust. And so we'll get into more of that in a moment and a little bit about your background and how you even started, how we even met. But go ahead and introduce David Williams, who's your director now of Gulf Shores Ministry of Youth Reach. You know, David has been a godsend. He, from really, you know, his late teen years, he was in ministry, service ministry, thankless, behind the scenes, ministry that touched the lives of many people. And it was really, if you go back and look at all the chess pieces that God had to move around to bring him to Youth Reach Gulf Coast, it was a 
a series of just radical things that God did, and it was for a specific moment. So he had to come there and be faithful just in a, a service role, just serving and loving and building relationships. And the day came when the entire staff turned to look at him in a moment of crisis. Mm-hmm. John Maxwell says that regardless of what you do, leadership will rise to the surface. Mm-hmm. And it was at that moment that uh, David's experience, he is a calm hand on the wheel. He will speak truth in love. He can confront people in love and they don't even realize they were confronted. And so these things all came together. And when uh, the moment arrived, for him to step in. He was ready, and there's been tremendous growth since then. Uh, The program is healthy. The facility, the campus is beautiful. Uh, The finances are strong. The board is strong. The staff is strong. You almost walk around waiting for something to blow up, you know, when it's... But we also know the enemy will come, and uh, we're prepared for that day, and we're vigilant. Uh, But David has done an amazing job, and, and you can talk about him as the director of that campus, but uh, the finest thing that I see in him is the way he loves his wife and kids. Mm. And if you don't lead well at home, you are an imposter everywhere else. Mm. I know that his children and his wife, uh, they rise up and bless him. And that's because in both public and private, David lives it out who he is. And so the the program there, we have 81 acres there. Uh, that wow, program, Gulf Shores. Yeah. Wow. And, and it is, I mean, there's cattle and there's a poultry program and amazing life skills, but it's just a ghost town without the guys that are there. These are, that campus is all 18 to 22 year olds. Our little byline is restoring lost futures. It's amazing. You can get a 20 year old who already has devastated his life. I mean, it may be picking up a felony or he's got two kids in two different states and he's got warrants in another state and he's he's already created such dysfunction so part of what we have to do is go back and start fixing things before we can even think about launching them and then in the Houston program we go much lower in age we're 12 to 17 and so it's really in both programs we're able to to care for the needs of boys and young men 12 to 22 years of age. Mm. David how old are you? 37. It's great to see a next generation really stepping up. You know, I, I learned from the late Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, the founder of the Christian Men's Network, and he used to teach us that maturity is not based on age, but on the willingness to accept responsibility. Mm-hmm. In my conversations with you in the last couple, three days, there's no doubt that you are way beyond your years mm-hmm. in spiritual maturity, partly because of experience, partly because you've been willing to give your life to serve others. You know, when we talk about Romans chapter 1, it says that Paul, a bondservant, yeah. and too many people want to be apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers, sure. but they want the title, but really it's a function. And so you are functioning in an incredible place of spiritual maturity because you've chosen to serve people. Mm-hmm. And so I just really appreciated the chance to get to, to chat with you a little bit, get to know you. And, and even though you're an Atlanta Braves fan, yes, sir. how did you end up coming to serve at Youth Reach yeah. Gulf Shores? Yeah. I, at nine years old, the Spirit of God just fell on me in the middle of the night. I look back and I wonder what was the catalyst that day. And it wasn't a Sunday. It wasn't a Wednesday night. I just began to weep and just alone in my little trundle bed in my bedroom and just wept. I, I didn't get up and tell anybody. I just It was this secret little thing that I felt like. I've been changed, I've been undone. Shortly after that, I was about 11, 12 years old, I was at a, at a youth camp. 
desired so badly to be a junior camp counselor. I just wanted to hang out with the kids and and the adults that trained and taught these kids to be more like Jesus. And I thought, man, this is this is fun. You just run around all day and you play games and and then you worship and you and you hear the word and and so they let me a little little early. They let me uh, be a, a junior camp counselor. And I was with one of the one of the best counselors there, and, and I just got to watch him and follow him for a couple of weeks. And even at that age, I knew there was something more. That, that, mm-hmm. But it was along those lines. I knew the Lord was leading me to work with people. And at 18 years old, I, I took a job with the YMCA, doing summer camps of all things. I was back in that you know arena and just playing with kids and and loving on them and in a way that was just simple it was just caring for them making necklaces whatever it looked like whatever the day brought on it was just saying yes i worked with a program that that helped abusers that came in before it got worse and learned how to meet people in places that i never heard of in my life i was raised by two wonderful Christians that I uh, was never abused. I was brought up in a very godly manner. And so hearing these stories, they were all very new to me. I'd been kept from a lot of that. So to come alongside these young men who, mm. who had just been hurt so in such deep ways, the Lord just was teaching me compassion, mm-hmm. how to come alongside someone who I hadn't been on the road. And the Lord just continued to to graduate me from that place. I worked at some Baptist children's homes and, and worked with just the best therapists, the best directors, and picked up everything I could. I got into as many meetings as I could to learn what's going on. What are they talking about? How are they doing what they do? So you became was, like a sponge. I want to learn all I yes, can learn sir. and how to serve yes, people. Sir. I knew even though leadership was always given to me at that at points, I knew I wasn't ready to really lead a a group of people. I knew that I needed to learn how to confront sin. I knew that I needed to learn how to patiently wait for the Lord to lead me, how to con- how to confront those things. And so uh, the Lord was just really, really kind in that. He led me gently and into areas of leadership that I didn't say, yeah, I want that right now and give me that. I waited. That wasn't my maturity. I think I was just well aware of my, how idiot, big of an idiot it was. What's interesting is this incredible depth of understanding God had called you at a young age, mm-hmm. your desire to learn all you could, and then serving in a capacity of what others would give up on, you know, people from 18 to 22-year-old young men whose lives are already shipwrecked, and yet you didn't have to be one of them right. to be able to care for them. Right. But you have the empathy of God, the heart of God, that God's been able to use you. Mm. And of course, I see like the older Samuel, so to speak, in a Kurt, mm. calling out a younger Samuel in you saying, mm. you know, I see this in you. And to bring you to that place of, of giving you that place of, of great authority and influence, not just in the in the young men that you're helping, but in that whole community. Mm. I mean, you guys have impacted. When I talk to people from that part of Alabama or another place, they hear mm. of Youth Reach Gulf Shores. Just like we hear, we've known you, Kurt, and you've reached Houston for decades now. So that comes with time. And, you know, I've learned that time, like light, makes things manifest. Given enough time, the true character or lack of it of an individual or organization is made known. I think time has proven the effectiveness and the wherewithal of the individuals involved with youth reach and the fruit that's now all over the world. I mean, you have people that others would have given up on, they would have been in the prison system, would have been in the grave, and yet so many 
have gone all over the world and are effective in life because you've taken the time with them. When you look at um, guys that have come through, we've realized that if the kind of guys that we get, both in Houston and in Alabama, these guys are not going to be good church folk. they much rather go into all the world and do some damage. Matter of fact, I've had pastors call me and say, this guy's causing problems. He's taught to ask the hard questions. He's you know, he knows what is supposed to be going on. And uh, we've got one young man that I think he'd love to meet, Doug. Uh, we've got a young man named Ryan who just joined in the Navy, and he's going to Bud's. Doug's dad okay. uh, was one of the early frogmen, you know. And, and so they crossed really, over in the, in the part of the crossover in the Vietnam War to the, to the SEAL. We were really excited about him because he was such a pain early on. We knew he something. There was a destiny. Mm-hmm. And some of the guys that have given us the most fits, that have been the most complicated, are really now, uh, they're world changers. Mm-hmm. They are. But, you know... Well, you've um, got some people that are actually rescuing human trafficked children yeah. in Cambodia. I mean, yeah. you've got people come through your program all over the world. There was a point in time in my life as I, I just wanted to go in the mission field. And Lori said, no, you're you're just going to be sending them. And then you get to go visit, you know, and uh, to go and see what they're doing around the world. And I've got one that's pastoring right now. And to think of who he was when we got him, to where he is now. Mm. Uh, it's stunning. It was all in God's plan. I mean, they had a destiny. We, Youth Reach hasn't worked a miracle yet. Mm-hmm. We just set up an environment where miracles happen, where mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit's welcome to come in and do ridiculous things. And we just get a front row seat. Let's go back to the history of how we connected, how you even started Youth Reach. You know, people have this romantic inclination about revival, romantic inclination about foster care, adoption, Romantic inclination about what things should be like. Mm-hmm. And doing the kinds of ministry you do, there is the romantic inclination because you hear the great testimonies. But it comes with a lot of heartache. No, I mean, you and I have done so many funerals for, for young kids on the streets and teenage prostitutes and, and others that were, you know, tweaked out on drugs. We were still young ourselves. We were in our 20s and 30s when we got involved. And yet we've seen all the pain. But we, what makes it worthwhile is that if we were never there in the first place, the greater tragedy is they wouldn't know who to turn to in the Lord because they would have never heard the gospel or had people that really cared about them. Kurt, you know, when you and I first met, you always tell this funny story. You can do whatever you want with this, but uh, everywhere I go, oh man, Kurt tells a story about you know, when you guys first met. What brought you to Houston? Because I know that you, you were from Alabama, correct? Yeah, and it really has nothing to do with the program being there now. Mark Twain said that coincidences are God's way of staying anonymous. I came from Alabama in 1979. I was in trouble in my home city. So I came Um, here in 1978. Yeah, and so I got to Texas, and it was a booming. uh, Oil business was exploding. I went to work in the oil field, and in no time, you know, I had developed a dependency uh, on crystal. They call it meth now. Meth was just like another tool in our toolbox to be able to work 14, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, and pull those hours. You know, through that, my life was was devastated. Ended up having to deal with the, the pain of the addiction, the pain of incarceration, the darkness that was in my life. But I hadn't been raised that way. I'd been raised uh, like David in a, in a godly home. I can't relate to many of the horrible circumstances that our boys describe every day. I was out here, and in the, the meth trade, one of the things that we could do is we could move a lot of product in Montrose. Now, Montrose, for those that are listening from around the world, that was, at that time, the 400 block of Lower Westheimer, in the Montrose area of Houston, was had the highest crime district in the state of Texas. Yeah, it was the highest crime rate in the state. 400 block was kind of the center of it. It, it emanated out from there. 
the gay bars, the transvestites, the drag queens, the drug dealers, the muggers, the, the chicken hawks, the whole world out there of the street kids. And there were kids from 12 or 13 to 20 or whatever, and they were, many of them were male prostitutes. Because Montrose, the city, the center of the gay community in Houston. When I came to Christ in May of 1984, I made this deal with God that I'll go anywhere in the world, but I, I don't want to go back to Montrose. And I felt a conviction almost as bad as being lost. I felt that distance I was putting between me and God by giving him a no. And I did that for several months. And finally, one night, I went back and the the kids thought I was there to front them again, that I was going to, you know, give them some product to move on the streets. And I had to convince them that I was there for a different reason. And it took a, a couple of months. And then one night, November 9th of 84, a boy asked me to put up or shut up. He basically said, I'm 17. I'm a HIV positive. I'm, I'm a heroin addict. I'm getting sick. I need real help. Not, mm-hmm. not a track, not a verse. And uh, really kind of called me out. And I took him in that night. Uh, thinking that I would find another place for him. But I quickly found out that the expense of care for someone like that was enormous, that if programs were charging thousands of dollars a month. And while I was looking, I just kept taking more and more kids. But God, you know, got behind it, and he showed me that it was all within his plan and uh, brought a board together and facilities together, and the rest is kind of history and I had the pleasure of being on one of your your board members. That's right. That's right. And, you know, early on, I probably for the first year kept thinking I'm going to find a place Mm. that I can take these kids and I can go back and and be, you know, a good church member or whatever. Uh, But it really became clear at some point that I had to to burn my ships. I had to uh, walk away from a very good paying job that I'd held on to and trust God that he was going to be there and walked out on the end of the limb, sawed it off behind me. In time, uh, about in Houston, about 3,000 boys have been through the program. And these are everything from serious addict to felons to spoiled brats and uh, messed up church kids. Now, this age group for the Houston Youth Reach is 12 to 20? 12 to 17. 12 to 17. And juveniles. And then Gulf Shores is 18, 18 to 22. So you're getting the whole gamut here. One time, in fact, a couple of my books, I quoted you. And this is back in the 90s. You had interviewed 600 or more teenage boys, and you said less than 20 had a healthy relationship with the father. That's still, to this day, probably our common denominator. Sometimes fathers bring their boys to us, and we think, oh, but then when we start scratching at it, and we've had boys that have no father, and then we have boys that they would have literally been better off without the one they have, Mm -hmm. that the father's been so destructive. So the father issue, that's the common denominator, if... If, if dads, godly fathers were doing their jobs, we would not have anything to do. This is chronic. Uh, it's a cancer in our society. Unfortunately, we have job security. What year was it that you and I actually met? It would probably been spring of 85. It was on Lower West Timer. Still had my hair down long and I looked like, my mother said I looked like Charles Manson. You know, you were out there and you had teams that were going out and, uh, I'd seen some people walk by, and they were always cleaner than, you know, the rest of us, you know. <laughs> I always knew that those people were probably Christians. Uh, they looked like the people I was going to church with, and, and I hadn't got quite that cleaned up yet. You know, Doug, you approached me on the steps of the 
Dragon Mike's tattoos. You know, you kind of zoomed in on me and started sharing your faith with me, and I, I was picking up some really good tips, listening to it, and I noticed that some of the kids around me were kind of sliding out and leaving me there, but <laughs> at some point I just told you it was too late, and you continued to press in and speak truth and, and love to me, and I told you again it was too late, and, and finally, I, I guess in frustration, you want to know, you know, why do you keep saying that? And I had a grimy little New Testament I pulled out and said, because I'm already born again, but that's really good, man. I appreciate you. So, you know, it kind of bonds you with a man that cares enough about your soul to try to lead you to Jesus, whether you're lost or saved. You know, it doesn't really matter. But from then on, you know, we've been friends and we've yes. done events together and traveled together and done things. And it's been a wild ride. Uh, even the Houston Chronicle back then could not believe that at that time you were now ordained Southern Baptist. I came from a, a charismatic Pentecostal background. It was ordained, uh, grew up in the Assemblies of God in Foursquare. And like, how do you guys get along? So they followed us off and off yeah, a couple they, of weeks and they did like a full spread <laughs> story on us. Yeah, they were they were fascinated because at the time I guess no one crossed a sidewalk to it. You know, talk to another denomination. There was so much. It was polarized. And the fact is, I don't even think we'd ever sat down and discussed it. We just needed one another. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was good. Uh, you just needed that brotherhood. Well, remember the first time, our very first Spiritual Impact Evangelism Conference that we did, back then it was called the Astro Village Hotel. Yeah. And when we said, we're going to get the body of Christ to come together and talk about spiritual impact things and the presence of God and evangelism. And we were told, you can't get the church to work across racial and denominational lines to come together. Well, okay, well, if 10 people show up, we're going to be there. And to our amazement, we had a lot of packed people place. packed the place. It was back-to-back speaking about the things of God. But we didn't do it in a church. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we had people from every race and background, denomination. And that was like, wow, God, you did this. Because our expectation wasn't on what couldn't what man couldn't do. Our expectation on there was a need out there, and we, the church, need to be the church. Yeah. I've got a friend that was here uh, for years. Now he's in, in Kentucky in ministry. But he tells me that Houston, in some ways, in many ways, and it's just its secular diversity, just the diversity of our city in Houston is dramatic. But also, he said, y'all are way ahead of the, the curve as far as churches and ministries working together, yeah. sharing resources and uh, and speaking highly of one another. Yeah, it didn't come easy. It didn't come easy. And I think, you know, to, to give them props, I think KSBJ had a big part of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, because they never got involved in any of the pettiness. They just became a, a bonding uh, through a radio station that gave us all the same voice, hearing the same things, going to connect in the same ways. We had a common purpose, just like you and I did, being from two different denominational backgrounds at the time. And now we're, we're closer than ever, Absolutely. you know, not just because we've been in the trenches, but because we have a friendship that's gone last of the decades. What brought us together was not so much our divisions, but what we had in common. We had a common burden of God to reach people that were hurting. I mean, at that time, I had 17 people living in one apartment, 12 in another, uh, a house that was given to me, Katie, and six more in another apartment. And you were having your place packed out. And then you began the next process of the refuge, and we worked together there. And then and then the other home that you had, you had Bo, the, the pit yeah. bull. Tell us that transition from the refuge, and we were working there, to where now you moved, and now you have this beautiful facilities on the outskirts of Houston. The refuge, now that I see what God did and, you know, looking back on it, uh, it gave me a chance, you know, we fed 75 to 100 kids every night and packed the place out. They would come in and eat, and it was a safe place. Uh, There was 
occasional violence inside, but we, you know, we, we learned to deal with it pretty quickly. It was a place where it was like a filter. I would meet this large contingent of kids, and then I would figure out which ones were serious about hmm. wanting out. Many of them just wanted, just feed me every night, and I'm good. When it got cold, do you have a jacket or a blanket? And yet we would meet those needs. But really, finding the ones that said, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. And so it was a season uh, for years right then. We were located at 408 Westheimer. So, I mean, we couldn't have been in, any more in the middle of the crazy insanity seven nights a week. It just never let up. And for the weekend warriors, we used to call it, they'd come out and do their Friday night, Saturday night thing, go and Cruising, home. fighting, you know. Yeah. Uh, but then yet now we're out there every day. Yeah. And you're out there literally. Yeah, I was living there with my new wife. And like you said, a, a nice pit bull that uh, didn't like anybody but us. And, we and you put that. signs up on your window that said, caution, pit bull with AIDS. Yeah, so people don't want to break one of, in. One of the most insensitive <laughs> things I ever did. Uh, regret that deeply. But, you know, the, what we ended up doing... Um, was when the, when that season was over, it was very clear that it was over and that it was a season that we needed. Nobody referred kids to me. I had to get them myself. We had built up enough to where we didn't have to run a place like that. I could keep the homes filled just because of what we built on reputation and putting our name out there and you know, school counselors and probation officers and juvenile court judges were sending kids to us. And we, for many years in Houston, were 12 to 21. And then one day, while we were developing the Alabama campus, we were almost ready to open. And we looked at the juvenile license in Alabama to get it, and it was a nightmare. We were going to have to do things that were going to be structurally uh, nearly impossible. And at that time in Houston, they pulled my license. The state of Texas pulled it. And the next day gave it back to me, only 12 to 17. They told me, you're going to have to get all these older boys out. And it became so clear that God was doing this. And so we said, well, then the Alabama program opening for juveniles is going to be a nightmare. Let's put our older guys there. And and is that a God thing or what? You know, the Houston staff really specializes in the late childhood adolescence issues. And David and his team in Alabama, they work with that failure to launch, already devastated 18 to 22 year olds, they're really specialized and they're good at it. Houston team is good at the younger ones. So we've, we've been able to develop a real strategy. Before, we were still kind of shooting shotgun. But what they're doing there now is tremendous with the older guys. So you have two separate boards, but they're but you're interconnected, obviously, because you're the founder. And right. of course, you, you have a great family. You've raised your family through this whole process. You and I were single when we started mm-hmm. and doing all the things we're doing, but you were able to find a blessing of the Lord, a gift from God and Shelly. And, uh, and now you have how many kids of your so own? Just have seven. Oh, just have seven. Yeah, yeah, we want 12 to 12 tribes of Williams. Or, <laughs> yeah. And then you have... Uh, all these others have raised up that others would have given up on and consider you a spiritual father and consider Shelly a spiritual mom. And, yeah. and that just blesses me because that's the same with me. People that maybe have good, healthy relationship with, with their parents, but there's something about the spiritual connection of mentoring and discipling that people value even the later in their years that they come full, come back full circle and say, hey, Kurt, I thank you for just investing in my life. Yeah, the phone blows up on Father's Day. Yeah. You know, and that's uh, it's a good feeling. That's a humbling thing. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what your plans are, David, as far as how did you actually get brought into doing what you're doing now with Youth Reach? Because I, I see it's a passion. Because the other day during our armor off time, I uh, asked a couple of questions. One is, you know, what do you do? Why do you do what you do? And so I added to the fact that 
you know, what's the passion that drives us? And there's no doubt there's a passion in you, David, and, and you have a great respect and admiration for Kurt and Shelley, and of course your families are connected now through what you do, but what you do is critical, but why you're doing it is what really impresses me. My heart just is burdened for, for discipleship. My heart is to see, just thinking about this earlier, just to, to see every young man that's, that's coming up in this, this next generation have the opportunity to, to, to have what I had, to have men who, even when I was in my sin, in between those sweet little youth camps and innocence and into ministry, this ugly season of sin and to be brought on into a youth group to help serve at a youth group when I was still messed up on the weekends. For someone to find value in me, for someone to say, I'm going to go after you, David, and I don't care what your sin looks like. I don't care what you think about your, your sin. The love of Christ compelled men throughout my life to give me a chance. And mm. I struggled all, always with grace. I struggled to understand because I felt the weight of sin so deeply throughout my life. And I struggled at times to get out from underneath that weight. And it literally took other men relieving it from me. It took other men who said, buddy, you're all right. This is normal. You're not buried. The, the Lord is not angry in you. So that's such a, a, a driving force for me is to have guys that I can see in their eyes that their value is so diminished that if they feel anything in them of, of value. And so to surround them with love, to surround them with grace, and to speak truth, not my conjured up flesh, hey, buddy, you're good at basketball, hey, buddy, but truth of what, this is what God says about you. Mm. Can you believe it? Mm. Like this, is, this is what the Father says about you. It's really to give every guy that comes into youth reach and, and then the, the community around youth reach to go after those, those guys as well. There's no doubt that your hearts have to be in it. And this isn't just a job. It's not just something good to do for your resume. And I think people, especially these young men, sense that authenticity. They're desperate, and, sure. and they are on the verge of, you know, as Leonard Raven used to say, you know, he would write me a note saying, let others live on the raw edge or the cutting edge. Doug, you and I should live on the edge of eternity. Wow. So eternity is right there for some, but there are many on the edge of imprisonment, on the edge of doing something yes. crazy. And, and yet you guys have been able to rescue them in the midst of these moments to keep them from going over the edge, so to speak. Yes, sir. Not even from just a spiritual context, right. but from just life. You guys have come up with some really good strategies, even in the way you set up your discipleship. You know, I was going to say programs, but there's so many programs right. out there that don't work. Right. But what I appreciated about David Wilkerson and starting Teen Challenge, what you guys are doing at YouthReach, there is, it's not about a program. It's about a family. It's right. about creating, an, as you said earlier, an environment. Right. So it's an environment, one, for God's presence, communication to God with prayer, but also the sense of, hey, we are a brotherhood here. We are here for your family for you. So this is not just, it's not institutional. In other words, it really is an incarnational place for relationship. Yeah, I think that what you know we've thrown around many times is that, and it's a what if, because we're still working on this. We're not a done deal, but our thing is, what if we created a true New Testament community that lives and does life and faith together and then we invite, we do that first. Then we invite these boys into that environment of love and community and family where they belong. They come in and they're 
caught up and they 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 feel vital. We're that's our we're the experiment. <laughs> we're trying to we're trying to do that all the time. How do we do that mm-hmm. and do it well? Mm-hmm. But putting community and and family and that New Testament community first. Mm-hmm. Kurt, you're one who you know had great parents, and yet you know I could imagine the the grief that your mom and your dad had. So there are some good situations, but somehow the devil's like a roaring lion goes to seek the precious life. And as Dave Wilkerson said, sometimes it's the ones that God wants to use the most the devil tries to distract. What would you say to those that are listening and how they could be encouraged and also how to continue to pray for their loved ones, David? And then, Kurt, tell us a bit about your new book and and what you have to say as well about that. I remember returning home after after my years of, of sin. I moved out of my house promptly after graduating high school and moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. And I jumped into all the things that my parents had, had cautioned me against. And I didn't do them under under their roof. I, I moved away to do it. And, and I found sin for and shame for two to three years and uh, stayed away. Stayed away from home. Stayed out of relationship with with my parents and the whole that the whole dynamic shifted in that time and as I returned home I expected parents to come down because last I knew they you know, they put you on restriction and they you know go to your room early and you know you're not you're not going to practice tonight and as I walked into my house my mom and dad's house uh, my mom greeted me with tears in her eyes mm-hmm. and um, she said David I've prayed every night that you would come home. It wasn't that they didn't know where I was. I, I, I kept enough contact with them. That they, I was never in that kind of, of addiction or anything, but they weren't connected to my life. They weren't connected to, to me as a, as a mother and a father. They felt distant and, and, and it was that sin that I couldn't bring around them. Or I didn't think I could bring around them. And so when I brought my, my sin home and I brought my shame home to be washed, um, by a mother who welcomed me with open arms and, and cried over me and spoke truth of, uh, and she began to just prophesy over what the Lord had shown her about my life. And I've spoken with so many mothers in that place, and there, I believe there's a promise for the praying mother. I believe, I believe there's a promise for the mother who who doesn't give up, who won't lose hope in the things that the Lord has said about the sons and the daughters. Um, that the prodigals will return, and I would say that you will you will see the fruit of those things that you've prayed, of the promises of God in your family, and 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 to not lose hope. Really, that that's the enemy. It's the enemy. Just his best effort is a lie, and so anything that comes against the word of God is the enemy's attack, and it's a lie. And so I would just say, don't bite in, don't bite down on that lie. Uh, Something you're saying earlier, David. Is it reminded me of what Paul said in Galatians five verse one, stand fast therefore in the liberty where Christ has set us free, and be no longer entangled the yokes of bondage. We're just trying to help people find that what they're pursuing is actually bondage, but there's liberty to be had in the grace of God, the great and abounding grace of God. Freedom. I love that. I was just thinking about Braveheart because in that movie, William Wallace says. Uh, men don't follow titles, they follow courage. Uh, and that's really what it takes courage to do what you're doing. It takes courage, courage to do what you're doing. It takes courage to say yes to God. You know, Henry Barley said to, to Dwight L. Moody, said, Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated or surrendered to him. 
And I see men like you and friends that we've, a lot of our friends have gone to the wayside. They've come and gone. A lot of people talk about ministry, but it's, it's the grandiose. It's the everyday, just carrying on people that we're still here. All these decades that we're still here. Kurt, you're still here. And I just thank God for your friendship and thank God for even the times and challenges in my life and vice versa. We've been there for each other as busy as we can be. And I appreciate you being intentional about that. And just share your last final words. But also tell us about your book, too, that you've got coming out. Well, I never wanted to write a book because I thought they'd all been written, uh, especially on parenting. And there's no such thing as an expert parent. Every time somebody says they are, they get embarrassed by their children. And uh, But I'm not an expert, but I am experienced. And uh, that experience is from my own seven and 3,000 of somebody else's. And uh, so the book is entitled White Knuckle Parenting. Raising Extraordinary Kids by Countering the Culture. It will not be the most popular book because it's advocating going back uh, to the way many times our godly grandparents raised kids without the enabling, uh, without the condescension, without uh, giving in the weakness that we raise now. I think that, you know, the, the like in the time of Daniel and the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you should be able to look at Christian kids and they should look different. They should sound different, dress different, you know, behave different, and they don't. It's because parents are not purposefully raising world changers, mm. taking the responsibility of saying, I am going to launch into this world a person that's different, with integrity and uh, honor, and, and walks out the Great Commission. And so that's what the book is about, is um, looking at what it would be to set that strategy in your home. So we'll see if, if I'm dragged out in the parking lot and stoned or how it goes. But. Well, I liked it. I wrote an endorsement for it. <laughs> That's, <so>. right. <laughs> That's right. You know, both of you really have shared also the importance of staying grounded in God's Word. And a lot of times we hear that. It's the cliche, you know, you need to get in the Word, you get in the Word. But it, the Word has to be living. And it only, can only be living if the living Word Himself by the Holy Spirit gives us a desire and a love for the written Word, which shows us His character, His nature, who He really is. And you've made it into a point where, of course, it starts with the discipline, but you've created an environment where actually the Word is really getting in to these young men that you're working, these boys and these young men that you're working with, and those that you get to reach beyond that. And I'm reminded, I have a 30-day devotional we just put out called the Word in Season 30-Day Devotional, which you can get, by the way, of those that are listening, uh, to go to our website at uh, somebodycares.org. And uh, and day two, I wrote um, about what Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, a tattered Bible is evidence of a life that is not. And I put, now obviously, just because someone's Bible is tattered does not mean that life is perfect or without challenges. But being in God's Word changes us, renews our minds, and gives us a footing upon which we can stand and build when our world is shaken. And, and really, that's what you two have done. And through all that you're doing at Youth Reach and the multitudes you've reached by being faithful to what you do, the multitudes around the world are being impacted because uh, you've changed one life at a time who are now impacting other. In fact, you have another one of your spiritual sons is doing crusades in different countries. And so you have every spectrum working with professional athletic groups. And so you, you have a whole spectrum of people that would have never been considered successful. They would have been part of the, the system. And yet you've rescued them in the midst of their most critical transitional points in their lives. And so to me, that takes a real El Gabor. I mean, El Gabor is the uh, Isaiah 9, verse 6, speaking of God, the mighty one, the champion, the warrior. Well, he's the El, the God of the champion. 
And uh, really, you've raised up Gabor's champions for Christ because you've given them footing that they need. And so, Kurt, any final words and pray with us and pray for those that are listening. No, I just want to encourage those moms. Uh, as David was saying, I, I am a product of a praying mother. Uh, David is a product of a praying mother. I knew your mother, Dougie. She prayed for you, man. That's right. And uh, <laughs> you know, when she said, Dougie, you, you responded. That's right. You know? We want to encourage them. And Father, I do ask you, Lord, right now, Father, for the mothers, the, the fathers that are discouraged. Lord, uh, show them that they're mighty and they're fierce and that your prayer, their prayers uh, land right there in your heart. And Lord, you respond. Father, we stand against uh, uh, those those vague prayers. Mm-hmm. Lord, we stand against those prayers that are just muttered, Father, and not declared. Father, we ask you, Lord, to give these parents that are waiting on that prodigal to come back down that road. Father, give them the courage to stand and pray fierce prayers, mm-hmm. prayers of faith, believing that not only is that prodigal going to come home, but that prodigal is going to come home transformed, uh, ready, prepared, And Father, we ask you, Lord, to build their faith. We thank you for this time. I thank you for my friends in this room, for David and for Doug. And we ask you to bless this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to another Word in Season with Doug Stringer and friends. Thank you, Kurt and Dave, for being with us. And remember, God hasn't forgotten you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.